Thank you, David, for reading for us the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, the third in a series of parables, stories that Jesus told um, about uh, explaining why he spent time with people that the good religious types didn't want him to spend time with. Um, and uh, the, the second of those, first or second uh, of those parables, is the parable of the lost sheep which was referenced in the new song that we sang this morning, um, He Leaves the 99. It's an allusion to the story of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them went astray, and he went and found that lost one, leaving the 99 uh, by themselves for, for the time being, until he found the one and brought it back home. It's in that same block of, of stories. And it's all meant to show us how much Jesus wants to reconcile with his people. He wants his people to be at home with him. With that thought in mind, we turn our attention to the sermon text for today, which is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. So from now on, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus Christ, in the stillness of our hearts, we give you thanks for your great love for us. And we thank you for reconciling the world to yourself. And as we ponder this mystery that you want to be at peace with all people and all things this day, I pray that you would help us to know how much you want to be reconciled with each of us and how you have called each of us to carry that message of reconciliation to all those whom we meet. Bless this time of reflection, we pray, in your holy and precious name. Amen. Throughout this season of Lent, a season of preparation for Easter, we've been focusing on the idea of generosity. And I've thrown a a slide up on the screen a few times, and I'll throw it up here again, or JR will, because he's so kind, of five different ways that we can show generosity to other people just want to remind you of these, and I'll come back to them at the end of this message, too. 
But generosity is not just with how we handle our money, although that does make the list. Maybe most important on that list is the emotional and relational support that we show to other people. That's a way of being generous. Generosity can also be expressed through showing hospitality to people, inviting them into our homes or into our spaces, uh, or giving gifts to people. That, that's not necessarily money, but something perhaps that you make. If you're, if you're good at crafting or making something, you can give a gift to someone. And the fourth way of those five is uh, serving or volunteering, giving of your time, your energy, uh, to some to some organization or to some person, uh, a way of being generous that that involves you in a very bodily sort of way, and then of course you can be generous with money as well. These are just five ways, five different categories of thinking about generosity. But one of the issues, one of the difficulties with living generously in any of these five ways is that we typically view these five things, or uh, how they impact our lives, through the lens of scarcity. We only have so much emotional stamina in our own selves to give. We only have so much space for ourselves, and opening that up for hospitality for other people is not something that we're always interested to do. We only have so much time to make the little crafts and things that we might be able to give to somebody, or whatever gifts you might like to give. We only have so much time and energy, we can't go serving and volunteering everywhere. We certainly only have so much money, we can't give uh, everything that we'd want to give. We view the world culturally through the lens of scarcity. And so our generosity is defined and limited by how much of these various resources that we have on hand. Now kind of tied in with that idea of scarcity is another idea about how we view our reward at the end of the age. (laughs) When we meet our maker, when we meet Christ, we will be rewarded. Uh, So we're popularly understood, uh, told to understand. Um, And this is perhaps exemplified best in one of the new TV shows that's on ABC, I think, these days. It's called The Good Place. Anybody watch The Good Place? It's kind of a funny show. Uh, Yeah, uh, the Smiths have. I see that they're laughing because they know where this is going. Um, The basic premise of The Good Place is that everyone in the show represents someone who has already died. This is the afterlife, so, so to speak. Um, and it's not a religious thing at all. It's very secular. But what it, w- how you determine whether or not you make it to the good place or to the bad place uh, is based on a ranking of how well you lived in your life on earth. And if you did enough good stuff, if you stored up enough karma, so to speak, then you would make it to the good place. And they have this really elaborate formula and lots of computer systems that rank everybody, and it's all very uh, kind of silly, but kind of true to how a lot of people really think about this life. That your reward, even in the world of Christianity, I had a conversation with somebody this week that were asking about, um, they had heard some folks say, okay, so you, you get to heaven by believing in Jesus, right? And I said, yeah. And then they said, well, th- then your place in heaven or your reward in heaven is based on how good of a life you lived. And I said, well, I don't know that scripture really 
goes that direction. That's not really what it's trying to communicate to us. It's going to be good enough to be in the presence of the Lord forever. There's an idea that circulates in our religious thinking that says, we have to do more good stuff because God's grace for us is limited by scarcity. There's the idea of scarcity again. God only has so much goodness and love and mercy and grace to share, and so we have to do more to get more of it. God's love is a limited quantity, in other words, and so we have to be competing with everybody else to get as much of it as we can. That's just not the way God works. That's just not the way Scripture portrays God. All of this talk about scarcity only serves to raise our anxiety. Only serves to make, make us more and more anxious about how little we have or how quickly what we have is going to go away. And that's not the approach that I want to have when we talk about generosity. Because generosity should not be done out of an anxious heart. It should be done out of a, a joyful heart. This passage, today's passage from 2 Corinthians 5, can help us to reorient our efforts and desires toward generosity. It begins with a re-examination of who Jesus is, especially through his death and his resurrection. Jesus made many teachings and performed many miracles, had a ministry that was all terrific, but, but Paul in 2 Corinthians says that something substantial changed when Jesus died and rose again. His followers understood that there was a fundamental shift in reality. For centuries, people had looked forward to the end of the age, for the Messiah to come, and for God's judgment and righteousness to be made complete, for God's kingdom to arrive in its perfection, for all things to be made right. This, had, this hope had existed in Jewish culture for centuries before Jesus. We can go all the way back to Daniel, the Old Testament prophet. Uh, there are many famous stories about Daniel. You might recognize Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Daniel and his three fireproof friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Uh, many different stories that all come the first half of the book of Daniel. But the second half of the book of Daniel is a part that we don't usually read very much. Because it's weird. Daniel has lots of visions of things that he can't really describe very well in words about stuff that's going to happen in the future. It is apocalyptic literature. Much like most of the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is apocalyptic literature filled with many kinds of strange symbols that are really hard to understand. And so we try not to read them too much because they make us a little worried, a little anxious, and a little uncertain about what they mean. But all apocalyptic literature is about revealing. That's what the word apocalypse means. It's a revelation. It's about revealing what God will do in the future. It's about revealing the reality of God's kingdom, even in the present tense. It's about demonstrating how different the world will be when God intervenes in human events. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? When Jesus died and rose from the grave, somehow this shifted up the timetable for the end of the age in Paul's eyes and in many of the early Christians' eyes. 
No longer were they waiting for something to happen in the future, but reality has fundamentally shifted because Jesus has overcome the final enemy, even death itself. And while we today are still waiting for the final and complete realization of Jesus' reign over all things when he returns at the end of the age, we recognize today that the kingdom of God is already breaking into this world because of Jesus. Paul says that we once regarded Jesus in a worldly way, as a regular human being, a great teacher, a prophet, a miracle worker. But now, because of his death and resurrection, we see him, and we see ourselves, and we see each other and everything else differently. It's a dramatic transformation that is already taking place. People who are in Christ are new creatures. The old has gone, the new has come. A better way of translating it is to say the old has gone and the old has become new. It's not that the old was worthless and just tossed aside, but the old has been redeemed and made into something new. The the lump of clay that was being shaped into a jar is not tossed out and something new is made in its place. No, God takes that lump of clay and reworks it into something new. The old has become new. This affects everything. This affects our self-image, our purpose in life, the relationships we have, how we approach material goods, even how we look at the concept of generosity. We no longer see things through the lens of scarcity. We see things through the lens of reconciliation. This is a big deal. The way of God is the way of reconciliation. Not counting people's sins against them, but giving life. Asking us to share the message of Christ with others. God is in the business of creating new life. Drawing people to himself and to each other, giving himself to us and trusting his message of reconciliation to us. As people who are new creations in Christ, our lives are transformed by God's work of reconciliation in us and through us. This begins with our acceptance of forgiveness of sin and of redemption Through Jesus, we acknowledge Jesus in our hearts and we acknowledge him verbally by speaking our faith to each other. And then the appropriate next step for someone who comes to believe in Jesus is baptism, uh, to be immersed in water as a public sign, a public declaration of faith in Jesus. But it's more than just that. It's putting into your body what you say you actually believe. Baptism is a whole body experience on purpose because it shows that we have gone all in in the recognition that Jesus is Lord. Not just a part of it, not not just our hearts or not just our mouths, but our whole bodies are, are in imitation of Jesus now. Our whole lives are imitating him in his death and his resurrection. The old has gone, the old has become new. If you have already been baptized, though, you're not off the hook. The baptism of a new believer 
which is something that we'll experience here three weeks from today on Easter Sunday. Uh, The baptism of a new believer is an opportunity for each of us who have already been baptized to renew our commitments to Christ as well. You picture yourself in the water along with the one who is being baptized. It's a renewal ceremony for all of us. But even beyond the discussion of baptism, we who follow Jesus should always live in a posture of becoming new. The kingdom of God is already breaking into this world. Reality has shifted for us. The old is always transforming into the new. Jesus does not call us to accept his name as a label, I am a Christian, and then to settle down and wait for heaven to show up. Jesus calls us to follow him, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, to suffer with him. To make disciples of all nations. To teach people to obey everything he has commanded. To baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To share the message of reconciliation with the world around us. Even, as Paul says in this passage, to become God's righteousness. As we our new creations in Christ, as we are people who are becoming God's righteousness, our expressions of generosity should be responses to God's work of reconciliation in us and through us. The spiritual work of new life in Christ and of reconciliation should work its way out in our expressions of generosity toward God and toward other people. We're generous not to build up a bank of good karma to give us a good afterlife. No, we're generous in response to the reconciliation that God has given to us. So, thinking again of these five categories of generosity, when we show emotional and relational support, we do so with an eye toward reconciliation, drawing people together. We lift up others when they suffer. And it's very natural for us to do that in a congregation like this where we feel very connected to each other. When one of us suffers, all of us suffer with him or her. That's what scripture says. And so we give emotional and relational support, and we should. But it can go deeper than just that. We can show this kind of support even to people with whom we differ greatly. People that we disagree with. People that are unlike us. People that we would not normally talk to. A few weeks ago, there was a mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand. I'm sure you've seen the news of this. Fifty Muslims were killed in a couple of mosques um, by a white supremacist. There was an interfaith prayer vigil at the Midland Islamic Center on Stark. It's basically due north of us. Um, about eight or ten miles or so. Um, that was on a Sunday night uh, just after that event happened. Tara and I were out of town. I wanted to be there. I, I would have been at that, at that gathering if I had been in the area because there's a drive within me to show the love of Christ in a reconciliation sort of way, even with people who are very different from me. How can we show emotional and relational support 
to people who are very vastly different from us. As we do so, we'll find out that really they're not that different from us. Hospitality. We invite people into our homes, into our personal spaces, but not just the people that we like, not just the people that are like us, but people with whom God wants us to be reconciled, people whom God wants to reconcile to himself. So this makes us think of a couple of different opportunities that we have. Uh, You heard Anne speak today about her, her call to be friends with our youth. This is a perfect opportunity for, for all of us to be engaged in uh, the lives of our teenagers in, in a way that shows hospitality, in a, in a way that encourages reconciliation. Not just uh, having our friends over, but having new friends that have been reconciled to Christ along with us. Uh, the Bridge of Hope program is something that uh, we have begun thinking about very deeply And uh, a number of you were at a meeting earlier this month to learn all about it and to see if this is the direction that you want to go for the next 12 or 24 months. I'm going to be contacting all of those folks here real soon to see if we can get the ball rolling with this. Uh, But it's all about hospitality, opening our lives up to someone who is in need, uh, someone who's not part of our circle, not just yet. When we give gifts to other folks, when we share tangible gifts with people, we do so not just to make people happy, but to remind them that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. When we serve, when we volunteer, we give of our time and our energy to point people toward the reality of Jesus' reconciling reign in this world. We serve and volunteer in the church in many different ways. Today, after the service, if you'd like to stay and help with our youth ministry for the next several months as we uh, look ahead toward the summer and toward uh, fundraising goals for the future, please stay for lunch in the fellowship hall. There should be enough food to go around, I think. Um, If not this week with the youth ministry team, the next Sunday with the congregational care team as we get that ministry restarted. Showing love and compassion by serving, by volunteering with, uh, with some of our elderly folks or people who can't get around very easily. Stay for lunch after church next Sunday and we'll get the ball rolling with that ministry again too. And finally money, of course. We... We can be generous with our funds, our finances. It's almost uh, too easy to do it without thinking about it uh, and what what it means. When you give money to something or to someone, uh, it can seem like a real quick and easy thing to do, maybe. But any time that we donate, any time that we give money, it should be done in alignment with the message of reconciliation through Jesus. We should give as a way of drawing people to each other, drawing people to ourselves, drawing people to God. How is God making you new? How is God reconciling with you, not counting your sins against you? How is God calling you to be an ambassador for Jesus by proclaiming the good news of reconciliation for other people to hear? How is God's reign and rule and kingdom made visible and tangible and real in your life? This concept of generosity is one way that these things can happen. Let's pray together.
Lord, we ask that you would make us new. We ask that you would inspire us to be committed to your cause of showing the message of reconciliation to all of those whom we meet. Help us to be reconciled to all people, to our neighbors, to strangers, to our enemies, even to our family and friends, as we have been reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that you would move in the hearts of those who have not been baptized yet uh, to, to uh, take the courageous step of saying, I want to follow in your footsteps and to be baptized in your name as a way of putting into practice, into bodily form, what we say we believe. And for those of us who have made that commitment, Lord, I pray that you would inspire us yet again to be generous in all ways, in all capacities, so that we might share your love with all whom we meet. We thank you, Lord, for loving us first and for giving us life in your name. And we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord.